almost everything that is good about a venture back company is the if you take the opposite of that, it's good for a bootstrap company. Josh, Star, and Ben. Three founders, Three's Company, Cerberus, Blind Mice, Hockey Periods, Triangles, Third Eye Blind, Podium Finishes, Tricycle, Founder Quest, Illuminati. So, welcome to Founder Quest. Today you have me, Ben, because Star and Josh are taking the day off, and we have Felix Livney, who is with us, or with me, founder-related stuff. This is one of our intermittent founder interview kind of episodes where we're just going to have a great chat and talk about some, some stuff. So, welcome, Felix. Thanks. You're telling me right before we got started about the differences of having an actual conversation versus a podcast conversation. And you had a great, great tip about email. So if you don't mind, could you like hit me with that again? Because I thought that was pretty cool. What I've noticed is if I write an email knowing that a lot of people are going to read this email, maybe it's an onboarding email that's going to be sent out to you know, many, many people. I, I don't seem to be able to write it in the same way as the emails I write to just that one person. And... I often feel that if I could just, if I were just trying to sell to one person, I could probably do a pretty good job. And I think the better attitude for me has always been to then try and to, to do that and then try and automate that. And it turns out very differently than when I'm trying to, to do the thing that is going to be automated right away. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I've had the same kind of experience where it's like, well, you spend a lot of time crafting, 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 and then it feels crafted, right? <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. feel like a, a real email. So do you like try to like email individuals for like 10 times or 20 times first and before you get that final copy that you want to send to everybody? Yeah, exactly. And I think really not thinking about tools at all is really the right way to go about it. All you try and do is think, what is the best thing for this one customer? And you do that for a couple of different customers, and then you look for patterns. When you do it a lot, and this is the advantage you have with podcasts, is once you do it a lot, you kind of see some patterns as well, some sort of meta patterns of like, how do the things that sound unnatural look versus the things that sound natural? And, and I'll just tell you one that I've noticed. I don't know if this is something you've noticed, but when I write a, an email to a single person, it usually has one sentence in it, maybe two. But when I write something that I think is, an, let's say, an onboarding email of some sort, it's not going to be that short. So that, that's definitely a pattern I've noticed. And I think we, we, we notice that as, as consumers uh, or business owners when we see inbound email we automatically filter emails that have just one sentence very differently than we filter ones that are multiple paragraphs. Yeah, yeah, I never really noticed that. But that's true, yeah, because most of my personal emails are just like a couple sentences. I mean, I was thinking back to the initial like set of onboarding or I just stock emails that we had for Honey Badger, like, you know, your billing has failed or thanks for being a subscriber or whatever. And I was thinking back and like, I wrote them and they're all like one or two sentences. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. It's like, yeah, <laughs> versus this big long book, right? Yeah. Yeah. In general, I think I'm a big fan of looking at software, automating things that people already do. I think sometimes that's the best software. And as opposed to sort of rethinking everything, because I think a lot of the time when you rethink everything, most things people can do just less, maybe less quickly than it would be if it were automated. And so I think when you rethink everything, a lot of the time, it doesn't fit as well as it seems like it might have back in the lab. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, we'll get back to that. I want to talk some more about, about that, but I want to introduce you more fully uh, since everyone might be thinking, hey, we just dropped to the middle of the conversation. It's like, yeah, you did just kind of jump in the middle of the conversation because Felix and I are old friends. We've been, we've been hanging out and chatting about business for years now. And 
Felix is an entrepreneur who is running a business called Schedulista. So Felix, you want to give us a quick rundown of what Schedulista is? Well, before Schedulista was Schedulista, it was uh, sort of an idea of, hey, I want to start a company that is a B2B SaaS company. And one of the very first conversations I had about that was with Ben. I don't know if you remember, I was looking back through my email, 2011. Yeah, that was uh, Paul, right? Yeah, our mutual friend, Paul, introduced yeah. us. And the topic of conversation was marketing in B2B SaaS. Something, admittedly, I still struggle with. I kind of had it on, on, in my mind as, oh, this is something I'm going to be bad at. And I don't know how to get customers. Maybe, maybe I need to reach out and figure out how that, that happened. And I don't, I don't know if this is okay to bring up here, but I'm curious to know. I mean, tell me if my characterization of our conversation is correct. But that conversation way back then, I think you were pretty pessimistic. And, or at least I think as a friend, you were looking, or as a new friend, you were looking out for me and you were saying, kind of, don't do this crazy thing. <laughs> Was that the advice you gave me? And then, if you were to meet someone like me today, would you would you give different advice? Yeah, my my memory of that conversation was not that I wanted you to not do it, but it was like I, I saw some concerns, some red flags, and I wanted to save you some pain just in case you hadn't, you know, like considered like because I as I recall trying to you know rewind back to 10 years ago what that conversation was like, you're you're sitting across the table from me and you're saying, I want to build this business that's going to require a lot of sales effort because I'm going to be selling to some people that, you know, I can't really reach well online. I was thinking, okay, so Felix is going to be like walking down the street, knocking on doors, trying to get people to buy his SaaS. And I'm like, okay, sure. But are you sure you want to sign up for that? That's kind of what I remember. Is that, is that kind yeah, of how you I think that's it? accurate. And, and that's basically exactly what I did. And we even did some, some things like send out postcards. I might have mentioned that as an idea that I'd had. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I think AOL used to do that kind of thing. And then it fell out of fashion. Maybe there's, maybe there's some wisdom there. And I think you realized how crazy I really was and how little I knew. And there was nothing but love I felt coming from you, which made it even like harder to hear, I think. So I believed you. And the irony too is I think I would probably... So I don't, you didn't tell me yet how your answer would change. But I meet people all the time who say they want to start a bootstrap company. And my first inclination sort of out of love is to say, I, you know, that can be tough. It can be, you know, I've seen lots of them fail. And is this, are you sure this is something that you want to do? Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. The funny thing is like the postcard thing is stuck with me for 10 years. Like I still want to do a postcard mailing thing myself and I've just never gotten around to doing it. So we, we did it and it, it worked. worked. It worked. Uh, and then we never yeah. did it again. Uh, <laughs> I would say there's a pattern. Everything that we have done has worked, actually, just not that well. And I actually, this is one of the ways that I think about marketing. In a sense, it's stochastic, or at least one way to view it is stochastic. So if you make a cold call, there's some chance that, it's, that the person on the other end is going to buy what you're selling, even if, it's, even if most people don't want it. But it may not pencil, right? You may have to make so many calls that it just doesn't pencil. So in a sense, everything works. The question is just how well does it work? And what we've found is almost everything does better than break even, but not by much. And, you know, for probably for a variety of reasons, but we sent out, I think it was a thousand postcards. We scraped Yelp. We looked at businesses that had five stars. They were only massage therapists and they were only in, I think, three cities. And we sent, we, we didn't license the, 
the photography very at all, really. So I would, I, I would probably, it's hard to find good photographs that you can license. But anyway, the photograph we sent out was this awesome black and white photograph that just looks so hardcore. It has Joseph Pilates on it. So the guy who founded Pilates and nice. he's, got, he's in this weird machine that he built at home. And it, it's so gritty and it would really resonate with the people that we were sending it to. And so we sent out these thousand postcards and we got one customer that we knew of. The only way we would know about it is because if they were to type this long URL that was on the postcard. If they just went to our site, we would have no way to track it. So we, have one, we got one customer. Uh, they're one of our biggest customers. We still have them today. And it nice. costs us 700 bucks to send those thousand postcards and get them printed and postage and all of that. And uh, yeah, we you know, had penciled. I don't know if that proves anything, but, uh, and I have had another conversation, you know, about a year after we sent the postcard, I talked to someone on the phone uh, that was in Malta and this person's friend had sent them, this, someone we'd never heard of, had actually emailed them a photograph of this postcard because she loved it so much mm-hmm. and she had had it on her wall and then she decided to give us a call. So I know that it had some impact. And yeah, there's been a lot of things like we've, we've done like that, that it's, that we just never really try to scale, but it, it does seem like it's got a lot of problems. I love that. I wanted to answer your question. Yeah. I think my answer today would be pretty much the same because it was, like you said, motivated from this place of love, like, Hey, yeah. I just want to make sure you know what you're getting into. Like, yeah. sounds cool, but you know, and I, I love talking to entrepreneurs who have ideas and, and they want to run it by me. And I always try to look for, you know, look for the good, like, Hey, yeah, that could really work. And also like bring some realism to the things like, Hey, have you, have you thought about this? Because it might be something you want to watch out for, you know, but it's never, I never want to say that out of like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. Cause like, I don't know. Right. It's not my business, (laughs) but hopefully that's, that's taken well, like, like, like you took it well, apparently. I took it well. And I think the reason I didn't listen to you and I think it's the right reason was not because I thought you were wrong. It wasn't rational. I actually think there isn't a great rational reason to do these kinds of businesses a lot of the time. Just because I think we live in the world of tech, it's pretty nice to go and work at a big tech company. It's extremely comfortable. You get financially compensated. I think what a lot of people overlook is the marginal value of any additional money that you might make is essentially zero. So doing financially better is just sort of not even interesting. So it has to be something that ha- that has to do with meaning in your own life. And it's the kind of thing when you add up all the negative reasons to not do it, that you're going to do it anyway. So I feel, feel like that's another reason that I tell people, I don't tell them don't do it, but I essentially say, you know, a bunch of things that are going to be really tough. And I, and I hope that they'll ignore me because I know that if they ignore me, they'll be doing it for all the right reasons, in a sense, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, to- totally. It's, it's so much, I don't know if passion is the right word, but there's definitely passion in it. It's probably not all inclusive, of the, but the, the idea that once you hit a certain baseline of, of money in your life, like you're fine. Like what's, where's that fulfillment going to come from? It's probably not going to come from a little more money. It's probably going to come from doing something that you really want to do for whatever reason, maybe like me, you're very independent minded and you don't like having a boss, right? Or you just, you see this need in the world and you can't let it go, or it doesn't let go of you. Like uh, when an idea keeps hitting me and hitting me and hitting me, then I know I'm like, oh, that's probably something I should spend some time thinking about, you know? And I think 
it's, it's, there's this kind of selection process. Not everyone's born to be an entrepreneur, but when, when you get that bug, it's kind of hard to, to shake it loose. Absolutely. All of those things you said resonate with me. I might add as well, being able to choose the people that you work with really carefully. And also for tech people, I think this, this, this makes sense, the kind of technology that you work with. It's no small thing to be able to say, I want to work on this cool new tech just because I think it's cool, which you seldom get to do that at a big company. Yeah. Yeah. Being of that, that, that self-determination is, is huge for sure. So you picked a business. So Schedulista is a, is a scheduling widget that sits on websites that you know, a hairstylist or a massage person can use to help you know, schedule appointments online for their customers. How did you decide that was the thing you wanted to do? Because when you came to me those 10 years ago, like you had pretty much already decided, I think you had some other ideas, but this was like at the top of the list for you. How, okay. how, did, how, how did you get to that point where you're like, that's, that's the thing I want to do? Yeah, so I knew, I knew a couple of things. And I started this company with a friend of mine, Lowell Manners. We were best friends. We'd worked together. And so really everything I say here, we, we decided to get, we saw the world pretty similarly, but we also built a lot of our theories about what kind of business we wanted to start. We built that together. And what we knew initially, I kind of was trying to remember exactly when you and I had that conversation and where in the timeline. I didn't know yet that we were going to do scheduling, but that's, that's a good point that, that we had probably already decided that by then. I knew that we wanted to do a B2B rather than a consumer product. I knew we wanted it to be software and we wanted it to be a bootstrap company. Right from, right from the initial starting point, we, we knew that we wanted it to be bootstrapped. So we were, we were intentionally bootstrapped. And so one of the core things we try to do is think about what is a bootstrap company? What makes a bootstrap company successful? How is it different from some other kind of company. And we came up with a, a theory about it. And the theory I think is contrarian, but I also think that there's a lot of truth to it. So the theory was almost everything that is good about a venture-backed company is the, if you take the opposite of that, it's good for a bootstrap company. Okay. So I'll give you some Example, I'm trying to find our original. I have my, because I was doing a little bit of research for this chat. I found our original slide that we made uh, for ourselves. And what we thought was good for VC backed companies was that there was a strong network effect, that they had an idea that they, there was kind of a winner takes all. When, when there was a product that there could be a winner takes all, that would, would allow you to create a moat. And this would typically be in the form of a new idea, because if there was, an old idea that had a network effect, there was probably, there was too big of a moat to enter that. Or it was, you could be a second mover, but you had something in your formula where you'd be able to kill the competition. So there's, a, there's, there's this first mover benefit or the ability to comp kill the competition. And then a lot of the time, investors will ask how many competitors you have, and, and they'll get worried if there's lots of competitors. So what we thought was good for Bootstrap Company was that there'd be low network effects that there'd be lots of winners, that there'd be no moat, that it was an old idea that was proven to work, that there were many late movers that, that uh, did very well, and that there were lots of competitors. So if you pitch that to an investor, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be like, okay, you, 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 
you hit everything wrong here. So we we that was that was one of our sort of initial ideas. And then we created a fitness function to evaluate a couple of things. And I and I'm trying to remember what they were, but it was essentially how big of a network effect does this have? We were looking for a company that was or a product that was established but not super mature. So it was right at that point where there were examples, and we were specifically looking for examples of other bootstrappers because we thought that other successful bootstrappers, because we thought that that would be a good sign that we could do it too. So we were like opening up a coffee shop in Seattle uh, versus opening up a coffee shop where they've never tasted coffee. Uh, those are very, very different. And, and right. there's difficulties for both, but at least when you open up a sh- coffee shop in Seattle, you know, hey, there's going to be people that are going to enjoy coffee. And you can look around and you can try and see what things work and et cetera. So that was kind of, you know, because we were bootstrapped and self-funded, we thought that seems a lot less risky. And that seems like an environment that we kind of believed in. We liked the idea that there could be lots of coffee shops and that they were in competition with each other, but not in a way that, that an independent coffee shop sort of desires that no other coffee shop exists. Yeah, I like that contrarian take. Uh, I agree. Investor probably kick you out of the office for coming up with that. But I mean, what, what you're describing is like there's a healthy market already, right? There are people who are already looking for this product. Like you don't have to convince someone that, hey, you want to drink coffee? So come to my coffee shop, right? And if there are n number of businesses already doing that, you know that it's viable, right? There's people spending money in that marketplace because there's other people currently receiving that money. So yeah, I think that's, that's some pretty awesome criteria there. Yeah, so we wanted to come up with 10 businesses and then evaluate each of these 10 and then choose the one that we thought would be best for us. And it wasn't completely scientific, but we did use you know, some numbers next to them and we had some kind of internal calculus that, that we did. And I'll give you some examples like e-commerce is an example uh, that fits a lot of what, what I mentioned, but it's too mature. You know, since we started, actually, there's been some companies that are in the e-commerce space that have done extremely well. I'm not yep. sure when Shopify started, maybe a little bit before us, but... It was, it was around that time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but around that time. And there, there's other examples that didn't do, you know, aren't as well known as Shopify, but still did, did very well. And I think it's because they have all of those criteria that the investors would not be so excited about, but they don't have strong network effects. So I, I think this kind of contrarian idea does, does, hold some, does hold some water. But we, so for us, e-commerce was too mature. Then we thought of a bunch of ideas that they might have been like one or two examples of, but we thought it was too new, that it was just not yet proven and it was a little unclear exactly where this was going to lead. So there were a lot, lot of ideas that we had around doing kind of online ordering from your phone that kind of dovetailed with how businesses already business. So you could imagine you're sitting in like a TGI Fridays and you can order right from the menu from your phone, or you could order from the, from the waitress, or you could right. be in a bar, you could maybe order some drinks at the counter. And then at your table, you could order you know, additional drinks. So we were looking at lots of things that kind of intertwined with how the real world does things, but automated some aspect of it. And, but we thought we can see a little of this. This was before a lot of the online ordering that we have today, because this is back in 2011. But I think it would be much more viable to do to do those things today as a bootstrap company. But a lot of these ideas, I think, are more would be more interesting as a venture back company. So 
those ideas were lower down on our... I did think of an idea actually called, I think it was tell the manager or ask the manager or notify the manager or something like that. And I pitched it at a, the, probably the only startup event that Lowell and I ever went to. It was like pitch night in Redmond. And we went to this event and I pitched it. And about six months later, I was contacted by someone who said, it looks like you never did that. Do you mind if I... And the person did it and did, did well. So nice. uh, <laughs> it's a, kind of a funny story. So there might've been other ideas on the list that, that are still interesting. But yeah, so online scheduling really hit that sweet spot. It's very similar to e-commerce in a lot of ways. I think in ways that maybe people don't really realize actually. But it's a lot less immature even now, you know, 10 years later. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, it seemed good to us. And uh, we were like, let's do it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love it. And I, I like, I like the, I love the contrarianness. That's right up my alley. <laughs> so you started this with Lowell, you, you worked together, built the business at some point. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've known you all this time and I know now that you're not working with Lowell anymore on the business on a regular basis. So what, what happened, like, just in general, like, what was that transition like? And, you know, what are some lessons learned from the co-founder experience? And now that co-founder is no longer with you. Sure. Yeah, let me, I don't know the best way. There's so many different ways to tell this story. I would say <laughs> one way to tell it is to tell about how we founded the company. So okay. we founded the company in my backyard. We had a conversation one summer day. And... I th we were drinking some beers and one of us said, oh, we should really just start a company. And I think I must have said that. And Lowell said, I'll quit. I'll quit tomorrow. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. And I, you know, I knew he was joking, but as he left, I was like, okay, don't quit. Let's think about this. I'm really excited, but let's think about this. And the next day he's, he, he texted me and he said, I quit. Have you quit? Nice. So I then, you know, took about another two days and, and quit. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's jumping on both feet right there. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, the biggest decisions that I've made, I've made sort of the easiest and uh, maybe lol doubly so. And I would say that's, that's kind of how we separate. Makes it was sense. really, 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 really good <laughs> until one day it was. And I, I think, you know, when you start out on, you know, definitely when we started out, and I think this is maybe more true for Lowell, who is significantly younger than me. I think if I'd said, okay, yeah, but there's one rule, we've got to do it for four years, he would have been like, what? Hey, wait a second, I need to think about this a bit more. So it was unclear, like, we, we thought, I mean, to be honest, we thought our first few ideas would fail. And we were looking forward to that, because we were thinking we would learn a ton, we were really aiming where in the direction that we thought that we would get the most learning. And there was no sort of long-term commitment other than we just, we, we thought we were going to have a lot of fun. We did have a lot of fun. And I think that there was a point where there were some other things in that Lowell realized that he wanted to do. And when he, when he realized like, oh, there might be some more long-term commitment involved in this, it didn't seem so great anymore. Yeah. And it kind of happened at a time that was extremely destabilizing for both of us. We, we had entertained an idea of selling the business and that would have come with kind of some golden handcuffs, which mm -hmm. kind of explicitly put into you know, black and white, this kind of long, longer term commitment. So I, I think it's a bit more complicated than that, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that built up for, for years and years and years and just, you know, kind of deteriorated 
it went pretty rapidly from this is amazing to eh, let's not do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. If your expectation is to just, you know, do whatever. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you want me to commit to the next five years, whatever that, yeah, that could definitely put some cold water on it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It felt very different after he left, but it has business-wise, the company has done, has done great. I would say as far as how it feels today, I enjoyed it more working with him, to be totally honest. Yeah. There's so many benefits to having a co-founder. Having the accountability is one that people often think about, but you know, just having the camaraderie, right? You're, you're doing the same thing. You're in it together. You know? Yeah. It's, to me, I think it's a lot harder. Even, even as, as independent as I am and as self-directed as I want to be, I do, do feel it's harder to do something so, completely solo because you, just, you have to have all that motivation yourself and there, there's no one helping you out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree totally. I would never have been able to do Schedulista without having Lowell as a co-founder. It is much easier to run a company that's already in place than it is to start something from scratch. And there's just no way that I, that I could have done it. And it's not from, hey, it's not so much that we complemented each other skill-wise or anything like that. It's, it's just this, there are a lot of things that are psychologically difficult. And doing that with someone else makes it possible, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel the same about Honey Badger. Like, there's no way it could have been done without the three of us working on together. There's just, I mean, first, there was a lot of work, but also, yeah, getting through those times where it's just a struggle is, yeah, I think I would probably throw in a towel if it hadn't been to have two good co-founders who helped me out. Yeah, absolutely. I know from our conversations that we have from time to time that you spend some time mentoring people who are looking to start businesses or who are just, you know, on the beginning end of this, this entrepreneurial adventure. What are the two or three kind of themes that you see coming up time and again, people coming to you and you're like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe look at this, you know? So if someone today is thinking about something like what, and they sat down with you, what are the kind of things that you would poke at their ideas and say, oh, have you considered this? Or have you thought about that? Yes. Most of the people I talk with are looking to raise money. Okay. Uh, and I actually have found out that there's another definition of bootstrapping that I wasn't aware of until I started mentoring. So to me, bootstrapping meant a company that doesn't raise money and is structured in such a way that will make profits and pour those profits back into growing the company. So there's a not, there's a not, that's not how the kids today are using the term bootstrapping, at least not the ones that are looking for venture capital. To them, you know, bootstrapping is what you do until you raise money. So uh -huh. you're structured as a typical venture-backed company, but you just haven't raised money yet, either on purpose because you want to build a, you know, a prototype or, or something else that an investor might see and you'd get a better deal, or you just haven't managed to, to put it all into place to raise the money. So most of what I do, actually, it's uh, like, I love venture-backed company. It's kind of funny that you know, I'm such, so much of a bootstrapper, but I don't know if I've told you this before, but one of my heroes is Craig Newmark. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know that, Craig, that Craigslist started as a list of startup because okay. he loved the startup scene. And yeah. here he, he loves everything about startups and raising money and all of this stuff. And then he starts this company that's like completely counter to that. And I, I feel like he is a hero of mine in many ways, but I, but I feel similar in personality in a sense that I love the startup world and I love working with these people and 
Who knows? Maybe I'll do a venture back company one day. Everything that I do in my business life is about bootstrapping, but all of my mentoring is pretty much about uh, venture companies. So I think a lot of what I do is I try and you know, tell them all of the things that are opposite of what I did with Schedulista. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I really prod them in the other direction. And it's, I guess everyone's different. I think I just try and help out where, where I can based on what I've seen. One of the things I love the best actually is working with other mentors. I love working with a founder with multiple mentors. And so I feel it's, I, I try to not do harm, you know, the Hippocratic oath of mentoring, mm-hmm. but I think it's easier to kind of say what's on your mind when it's balanced out with, with other mentors. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling to think like if there is a single pattern or thing that I see that I would, would help people with. Maybe I'm going to think about that for a second. I can come back to it. Sure. Maybe this is a different way to look at it. Like if you could go back 10 years and mentor yourself, right? You, you come to you with your idea for Schedulista. What kind of things would you say to yourself with the experience now that you have? Okay. I, a couple of things pop into my head. I don't know if these are top things, but one of the things I tell new founders is about LinkedIn. How wonderful LinkedIn is. It's the only social network that I understand, but I think that I, which says a lot about me, but I think I understand it pretty well. And I tell them you can reach out to people on LinkedIn who can help you. And it's not sort of like, hey, look for another mentor or look for people to give you advice about X, Y, and Z. But let's say you're starting a business in the analytics space. And let's say that it's very similar to maybe some these three other businesses. Maybe these folks would be competitors of yours. I would say reach out to those, which is so counter to what a lot of people are comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But and I have a formula for they think that they'll never hear back from people. I have a formula for how to reach out on LinkedIn, which is you craft an email that there is only one person in the world that can answer that email. And that's mm-hmm. the person you're sending it to. Mm-hmm. So if you ask someone a general question like, you know, hey, how should I market this business or something? They'll think to themselves, well, I'm not going to answer this. Anyone can answer this. But if you ask them a question that only they would know, and you make that connection in a way that, hey, you are facing something that only they have seen, they, they will respond. So that's my sort of, that's one of the tips that I share is make those connections with other people in the industry that you're going to be in. Ask them a lot of the time, you know, they'll have some plan. And one of the things they'll want to do is understand each step of the plan. They call it de-risking. That, that's like the $2 word. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the best ways to sort of de-risk a plan is to find out other people who followed that same path and succeeded and try and map that path onto some other path that a business has followed and then talk to those people and, and run what you're going to do by them and, and ask them if it's going to work. I love it. That's great. So yeah, I, I can say also to, to another thing that I that I often that I believe, and I don't know if you you agree with this, but I think that there are far few different business types out there, business structures out there than people think. Because we're in tech, we often and let's say we're a venture back company, we're doing something that the world has never seen before. It's going to take. It's going to be the next unicorn. It's it's by sort of definition nothing like anything else out there. But we extend that to the business structure. And what I mean by that is how 
customers are acquired, what metrics that you should measure, how growth will happen, how marketing will operate, how you'll get your first customer, your 10th customer, your 100th customer, and what your channels are, those kinds of things. And I don't think there's that many different patterns out there. I think that there's just a handful of patterns. And there are businesses sometimes that introduce brand new patterns, but they're very rare. And so a lot of the time, what I encourage people to do is to figure out exactly what they think their business structure or pattern is, and then map it onto another business that was successful that has the exact same pattern, and maybe find three or four of them, and then figure out how did they acquire their first customer? How did they acquire their 10th customer? And sometimes that's you can find that out by looking for interviews and, and things like that, but reaching out to people as well that I just mentioned can be very, very powerful. So innovate where it matters, but you know, don't innovate everywhere. That lines up with, you know, in the technology world, we have this idea that you should use boring technology because like you only have so much innovation you can do in your business. Just use a plain old database, right? Don't don't go crazy with the newfangled hotness, right? And but yeah, I think I totally agree with you, actually. Like use those well-worn paths, use those channels that everyone has done a thousand times before because it's you don't need to innovate there. Yeah. And you can find so much depth in anything that I think there's sort of a fear that, at least I have this fear. I always want to orient myself towards whatever I think is going to be the most interesting life. But I think if everything is interesting, that doesn't necessarily add up to more interesting. I think that sometimes, you know, a lot of things can be boring. Like you can be Steve Jobs and wear the same black turtleneck shirt every day. He's not innovating in his wardrobe, but that doesn't mean that he's not innovating. He's not maximizing innovation. So I try and remind myself of that. I think it's an easy pitfall to fall into and really being intentional. I, I would say, here's an advice that I would give myself that I thought of, and that's kind of aligned with, with what I've been saying so far, which is a lot of things, I kind of think separate sort of opportunities into inbound and outbound. So inbound opportunities are opportunities that come to you. They arrive in your email box, they, you know, there's a phone call, a friend tells you something over lunch, you see a, a cool movie that inspires you. And then there's outbound. And outbound happens because of some mental model that you have about the world, and you intentionally decide to go and do something. And I think all the time, you get bombarded with inbound stuff. And most of it is not that interesting. And then sometimes something interesting comes along, and you think, okay, I'm going to follow up on that. I actually think if someone ignores, and I think it's more subtle than ignore, but if someone does not respond to all inbound, they're way ahead of the game. If you just sort of erase every inbound email and never read, you're way ahead of the game. And if you do things that are, that are only outbound for, for your life and for your business, I think that that is uh, very, very powerful. By ignore, I don't mean, like, let's say you see a movie and it's about some people that moved to Argentina and reinvented themselves. And that really inspires you. And you think, okay, I could move to Argentina. And you do, and it's great. That kind of stuff happens all the time. But I don't think it's optimal. I think you should watch that movie and be inspired, but then you should figure out what is it about it that's inspiring? Is it living abroad? Is there something about Argentinian culture that's really cool? And then you should come up with some kind of a fitness function. And you should also think, what is the opportunity cost of doing this versus everything else? And then you should, as an outbound effort, figure out 
okay, so I'm really going to do this a broad thing that's going to have the following characteristics. Where's the best place to be? And I bet you don't end up in Argentina. That's awesome. And, and this is why 10 years later, like I still find every conversation with you super productive <laughs> and sometimes inspirational too. <laughs> right on. It's great. It's great chatting with you, Felix, as always. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it. Do you have any parting thoughts? Yeah. How different did this conversation feel from a conversation that you and I might just have? You know, it's pretty close. Yeah. Obviously, like we've got, we've got the world listening with us. And so it's, it's a little different. It's not quite as intimate right, as usual. And, and of course, we haven't talked about any numbers and things like that that we usually get down in the weeds with you and I. Yep, yep, but, yep. Uh, but yeah, pretty close to our usual conversation. What do, you, what do you think? Closer than I thought, but I don't know. I might listen to this back and just be like, I'm not going to send Ben the WAV file. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my pro tip is I never listen to the recording. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way I do it. <laughs> okay, good, good. That's actually, well, you should do that too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easier that way. It really is. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks so much, Felix, for taking the time. I appreciate you doing this for me and hanging out. I, I know that I've learned some things and I hope that people who are listening to the podcast have also learned some things. If someone wants to reach out to you, where's the best place? Twitter, maybe? I don't know how to use Twitter. <laughs> if you reach <laughs> out to me right? with Twitter, you have to show me. That. I would say just you can send me an email. You can find me on LinkedIn. How about that? LinkedIn, there you go. Find me on right. LinkedIn and ask me a question that only I know how to answer. Bingo. I love it. All right, Felix. Thanks again so much. Okay. So like Star usually does our outros, but I will, I will try to fill in for Star as best I can. And I will say you should uh, you know, go and review us somewhere. Give us those five stars on those podcast listening things that you do. And as always, uh, let us know if we can answer any particular questions for you or talk about anything that you find interesting. Thanks so much for joining us and hope you have a great week. Thanks, Ben. It was awesome. Founder Quest is a weekly podcast by the founders of Honey Badger. Zero instrumentation, 360 degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Available at honeybadger.io. One more from the founders? Go to founderquestpodcast.com. That's one word where you can access our huge back catalog of episodes. FounderQuest is available on iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of fine podcasts. We'll see you next week.